Just how powerful is our language exactly? To what extent do the words that we use and the stories that we tell ourselves internally and externally impact the way that we see life? Is it possible that when we change our dialogue, and when we change the way that we frame the stories we tell ourselves, we can also change our internal narrative and then begin to see some real changes in our lives? We'll find out on today's podcast with Mark England. I'm your host, Meg, and this is The Valkyrie Project. Welcome back, everyone, to the Valkyrie Project podcast. I'm your host, Meg, and very excited to be sitting down finally here with Mark England. How's it going today, Mark? Going very well, Meg. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really glad that we can actually get rolling with this. Uh, We've had a couple of hiccups previously trying to get Mark on the show, but we've been really excited for a long time to pick your brain and get some of your expertise on um, a lot of the topics we're going to talk about today. So appreciate you hanging in there with us. Uh, I think it was what the first time we tried to record, there was like a major power outage on your end or something like that, a big storm. Yeah, big storm. We had the power outage countywide, numerous 20, 30 trees down in the county. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, nobody was going anywhere, much less uh, podcasting well. Yeah. We were doing okay on the farm because we had a generator, but uh, yeah, uh, everything else was, was done. So were you guys involved in all the, the recent hurricane stuff we had going on in the southeast? Yep. Gotcha. Tail end of that. Man. Well, I'm glad everybody came out of it okay and um, that we can actually sit down and have the connectivity to do this now. I want to start the podcast in a similar way that we've started others previously. I generally get the impression that, you know, whenever we have folks on the show that have a particular vein that they've chosen to pursue in terms of, you know, helping other people or creating a career that it often has a pretty personal story tied to it. And I was interested to read some bio information that a a mutual friend had sent to me, um, just reading about kind of how you got to where you are today. So I guess my big curiosity at the moment right now is, you know, how did you get to the point of starting Procabulary? What was your inspiration? What was the inception for building this program that would essentially be a helpful tool for people that want to change their lives. It all came out of personal need, Meg. You know, we can start the story at several different points. Uh, let's start with a, a fateful email that I got okay. from, from Career Services, my last week of college. So four and a half years of getting emails from, from Career Services, I opened two. One the first week of school and the second, the last week of school. And uh, the, the, the one that I opened the last week of school, it was just on a hunch. I had this strange pull, desire, knowing that I, I needed to open this particular email. It was, it was, like I said, strange. And I opened it up, and it said, teach in Thailand. And wow. it took me one full second to make my decision. I, wow, okay. I, I looked up for one second, looked back down, read the title again, and decided I'm going. I emailed the person. They were having a, a, a meetup about what the specifics of that adventure entailed. And, uh, yeah, I went. And one of, the, one of the reasons, there were several reasons why I was, it was that easy for me to make um, what most people would call a split decision, uh, a right. radical one. I'd only had my passport for a couple of years. And now I'm moving overseas. Uh, I was a 
champion kickboxer in college and uh, an MMA guy before there was such a thing, before it was titled that. And it really was my everything, my obsession, my identity, my how I've let off steam. It's it's how where I I place myself socially, and all of my friends. I was a mediocre athlete in college, and a lot of the guys that I trained with were high-level athletes, and they mm-hmm. were progressing quickly. They were going pro. They were opening up their own schools, and I wanted to go pro too, and I, I saw this as a very interesting way to go about doing that. Move over to Thailand, practice, practice, polish up my Thai boxing skills, and then move back home after one year and go pro. Uh, and that is the exact opposite of what happened. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that's a tall order. You got to dream big. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to go for stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I did. I moved over, and within five months, I was on the operating table having my second knee surgery. And I remember very clearly. I said it in the TED talk. The doctor said. And you know, in in no uncertain terms, that you are done. Your career as a fighter is over. You could become a very good swimmer. And to say that I took that hard is an understatement. Um, I used that experience as proof of all of of my insecurities and fears about myself being true, that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't up for the challenge. I was never going to amount to what, you know, my, my training partners were, were able to do. And I, I, I got so, uh, twisted up internally with a victim story. And we'll go into the definition of, of the victim mentality later, because it's very important for this conversation. I, I, I created such a victim centric uh, uh, a story about myself that I didn't laugh for an entire year. I didn't smile. I couldn't get my face into position to enjoy anything about life. And, uh, and once it registered with me what was going on, the fact that to some degree, and I didn't know how much I was at the time, to some degree, I'm participating in this, this story I'm telling myself. The fact that I, I I can't laugh with my girlfriend anymore, um, and that if I do this for another thirty years, which is a, a, a legit possibility, I mean, why not? Some people do. I looked down that mm-hmm. path and saw a, a version of me at fifty-five, and it scared me for good reason. And lo and behold, one of my uh, fellow PE teachers, I was teaching at an international school at the time. He had uh, he had a book, and he gave it to me, and it was all about how the Taoists go about developing and cultivating health, traditional Chinese medicine. And the first thing that struck me it was a, it was a, like it felt actually like something struck me was that their paradigm for health and well being was the exact opposite of ours. And so, really, yeah, complete opposite. So, and here, here's here's how it works. Some people over in China that that subscribe to traditional Chinese medicine, they have a doctor, and they pay that doctor to keep them healthy. 
when they get sick, their doctor stops getting paid. Wow. That's incredible. It's incredible. It's kind of earth shattering. Well, it makes perfect sense. It, 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 exactly. Yep. And I thought, that's, that is, that's fascinating. I want to know more. And it was in the first couple of pages of the book. So I went to the book and it talked about, uh, uh, acupuncture, talked about diet, talked about meditation, breath work, cleansing, uh, uh, fasting and cleansing. And, and the buddy that gave me the book, he goes, you know, there's a, there's a, a resort down on the island of, of, of Koh Samui. I was, again, I was in Bangkok and this is a, an island a couple hours away by, by, by plane. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they have a, a retreat there, a spa. It's called the spa. And people go there and they do uh, seven to ten day intestinal tract cleansing programs. Cleanses as they're known now. And uh, and I, I think Tom, our vice principal, he went down there and said he had a, a, a really positive experience. I went straight to Tom. I asked him, he's like, oh, yeah, that's real. They're doing it. You should go. I went. And I had, I, I got it, – it took some of the edge off, Meg. There was – I went down there and I went through one of the cleansing programs and I felt better physically on the other end. Of it. I was still a train wreck psychologically, mm-hmm. emotionally, and it was something that I could do, okay? So I kept going back, and it was either the third or the fourth time uh, I went down there to do a, a cleanse. I met a man by the name of Barry Musgrave, and uh, he ended up being one of my mentors in this work, and he was doing a presentation one evening at the spa on emotional detox, emotional detoxification. And me and all my my brilliance, I I laughed at it. And the guy... Oh, man. Oh, yeah, right? And the guy that told me about (laughs) it, he goes, no, you you need to go. And he said it in such a way where it was was kind of freaky. So I said, okay. I went, and Barry starts talking about language, about stories, about engaging our imagination about forcing us for better or for worse to focus on things in certain ways, stress responses, identities. And then he asked the question, is there anyone dealing with a story? And this girl just shot her hand right up. And she told the story of her and her friends and her boyfriend and his friends going down to beach week and, you know, partying and um he hooks up with one of her friends in front of everybody one night and then dumps her in front of everybody the next night and she was just she was it was it was a couple of years later and she was still very upset about it so much so that she didn't want to get in another relationship she was still hurting and uh he had her go through the story and at the end of the story she was she was angry and crying and he said okay this is good Stay with me. Go through the story again and make these couple adjustments to the words, these particular words. He pointed the pointed them out. She did. And now, after the second telling of the story, she sat at no tears. Three minutes later, he said, "Okay, we're going to adjust the the middle piece and take off this the last half of the the, the last sentence." And she did, and she had a much more clearer, succinct accurate story, drama level came way down 
and so much so that she had what's called a cognitive shift about it. See, our emotional status about whatever it is holds our perspective in place, just kind of like glue. And he helped her uh, uh, let go of some of these residual emotions about the situation. And, and she goes, and so she could change her mind. He had her play the story again a third time, and this time at the end, they made some adjustments to the story, adjustments to the language, took out a, a very important, highly dramatic part in the middle, and then the, the second half, the last sentence. And this time, <clears throat> when she played the, the, the story through, she, was, she, she had enough emotional clarity about what what was what had what had happened that she was able to change her mind and i've i talk about this a lot that our emotions how we feel about what's happened to us um you know for better or for worse <clears throat> it holds our focus it, it keeps us seeing the situation in a certain way and because she had let go of enough of that you know it was two it was a story from two years ago enough of that emotional hmm we use the word baggage, she was able to change her perspective on the situation. And she had what is called a cognitive shift. <laughs> and this is what it sounded like. She goes, well, you know, that guy was actually kind of weird. It wasn't going to work out anyway. And I saw that and I thought, that's not my story, but that's my story. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he, we finished up the workshop and he said, if this is, work interests you all go to this website download the 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 manual and uh and you can do this work on yourself and that was was very appealing to me because i was so i was so locked up i didn't want to talk about my story at all to anyone it was it was i was just i was just way too guarded and i did want to work on my story so i did and um I ordered all 80 to 80 DVDs that were available about of this certain style of story work. It's called EFT at the time. Watched all of those a number of times. Went and did a training seminar and moved back to that same spa, Meg, and uh, started working as one of the counselors. And that's where I spent the first five years of my professional career. Uh, I'm now 12 years in. And... Um, and it still fascinates me. It's, it's, and I'm very thankful for that. There are a couple of things that, that hold my attention. One of them being martial arts. One of them being the language work. And from the very beginning, I paid very close attention to what people said and how what people said influenced them, for better or for worse. And once I start, started to see the patterns, I started taking notes. And guess what? I'm still taking notes. What we did with our foundational language training course, uh, Core Language Upgrade, is we put the, the, the foundational principles of the vocabulary model and specific ways to navigate language, to use language in a more empowering, constructive way, stuff to watch out for. Here's an example. I was working recently with uh, the, a gentleman in London, and he said, he said very enthusiastically, why do we always have to drink so much when we go out? Ah, but you don't. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, that, that, that's true. And his language 
the, that sentence and and saying that sentence and then saying the saying it the way he said it, it forced him to basically give up his power to use some very common mm-hmm. uh, some common language. And what we do a lot in vocabulary, and if you're listening to this podcast and you've got some thoughts that are looping stories that keep you keep coming back to the same story, the very fastest best thing to do with that is to write it down. Write it down conversationally and get it on paper. It will break that looping process quick. And I had that same gentleman do that with that statement. And why do we always have to drink so much when we go out? He wrote that down. And we took we we played one or two word game. That's usually how how we go about navigating sentences. And so I had him remove the word the two words have to. So why do we have to always drink so much when we go out went to why do we drink so much when we go out? So the drama level comes down. Can you see how that would change his his perspective, the mental imagery? Oh, absolutely. Um, And I kind of, you know, with that thought in mind, I kind of want to go back to some stuff that you had discussed before, because I think that in a pretty significant way, a lot of folks listening to this podcast can probably think of a time in their life where they've encountered something very similar to what you went through and what you experienced, especially getting caught in that negative feedback loop. It definitely sort of set me in the time machine to go back to, you know, when I faced something pretty similar and not, you know, to the same devastating degree of not being able to laugh or smile for a year, but really just being caught up in, you know, we talked about the storytelling and what your personal narrative really is. There was a, I'll never forget this moment. It was kind of like a light bulb moment for me, kind of like when you had the realization that you had. I was in a training event that was kind of on the heels of what were my very short-lived CrossFit glory days. Uh, I had essentially previously competed in a regional competition and then not long after that started experiencing shoulder problems and realizing I could do less and less as time went on. And right around the time that I was being told, you know, you're going to have to have surgery, you're not going to ever get the same strength or range of motion back in that limb again or that, that shoulder again, um, it was pretty difficult because, you know, I had, I didn't realize it at the time building up to this one particular moment, but I had so heavily in, invested myself in the story of being a CrossFitter, um, you know, of having the dreams of glory of, you know, going winning in competitions and stuff like that, that I didn't realize I had ingested that so much as part of my being that when I, when I had to face the reality that maybe this couldn't be you know, the number one priority in my life anymore. It was really difficult. And I remember in a particular military training event, we were lucky enough to have essentially a small staff of sports psychologists that we could talk to as part of this training. And one day after class, we decided to, myself and a couple other students were sticking around listening to a conversation that was kind of ongoing between this particular guy and uh, one of the sports psychologists. And Essentially, what he said was, you know, I used to be this amazing marathon runner, and it was it was my passion. I was really good at it, and, you know, I was super competitive, and it was just my whole life. But my life has changed so much since then, especially since I joined the Army, and I've gotten married, and I've got kids now, and, you know, everything's different. And I just, I wish I could get back to that place where I was inspired, and I felt like I was, 
you know, in a state of flow and, and really living my dream. I just can't find that passion anymore, even when I run. And the earth shattering thing for me was when that sports psychologist came back to him and said, well, it sounds like you've really tied yourself up in this marathon runner identity. And maybe it's time for you to look at the possibility that who you are is so much bigger than that one identity. And that maybe that was your narrative for a while. That was your story for a while. But maybe it's okay for you to give yourself permission to do something different in your life. And that was like, it was like a ton of bricks hitting me on the head. Like, you know, maybe hanging on to that identity of being a CrossFitter or whatever XYZ that, you know, a particular person is, maybe holding on to that isn't necessarily productive. And that, you know, we can continue to take in stride the, the different evolutions of life and realize that, you know, at your core, if you have a set of core values and you, you have a purpose and you know why you're here, then really those different, those different evolutions of life, you know, it's, it's just a part of the bigger story and it's not something that has to, to continue to burden you. So I thought that was, was definitely, you know, hearkening to, I think, a story a lot of us can relate to in, in, in terms of disappointment and frustration in, in situations like that. A hundred percent. And let's, let's make the conversation even stranger. You know what the definition All right. of a spell is? A spell? Yeah. Like Webster. Oh man. Not, not mine. I should be able to recite this because I have diligently, like a good student, taken your vocabulary course, but I actually don't. I, I think it's, I think you said something about, um, imbuing power with words right it's even it's even more plain than that the definition of a spell is a word or a combination of words of great influence and mm -hmm. when i tell myself a story about me being a fighter mm -hmm. and, what that means, and you tell your story about being a crossfitter like exclusively a crossfitter and that it's the most important thing and the guy saying the same thing about the marathon, his, his marathon, marathon running, and not being able to break that spell, mm -hmm. that that creates a lot of pressure on people. So when you were going through your shoulder injury and, and changing the conversation with yourself, um, how did that feel? Well, I, I mean, it for you know, it, the whole process leading up to that particular conversation I heard was just a continual cycle of disappointment and frustration in myself that I couldn't do what I, you know, I couldn't carry out the expectations I had for my body. But the moment I realized that I was living in the same perpetual cycle, you know, of disappointment as that marathon guy, I was like, wow, I, I feel like a burden has been lifted off my shoulders because I am no longer obligated to hold on to this identity that maybe just doesn't make sense for me anymore. Um, it was, it was really a big moment in my life where, you know, I kind of gave myself permission to move on and realize I can still be Meg and still do great things and do the things I want to do with my life without holding on to this. And so it was really a turning point. Very cool indeed. And this, this is, the conversation that we're having right now, and we're going to go into some some specifics um, of the, the three pillars of conflict language, if you would like to, a little bit later, because uh, you, you're taking the vocabulary course, and that's a lot of what that's about. Um, this is this is more information about how 
language. And when I say language, Meg, I mean internal dialogue and external dialogue. What we think, that's the internal, and what we say and what we write, that's the external. There's more information in this one conversation than most people get in their entire schooling about how their language influences them and other people. Uh, I was I went to the public school system, and then I was a teacher on the other side. I have a master's degree in international education, so I, I can talk, talk about it from um, you know, both sides of the street. And I, I had in not one class or even conversation about how my language influences me. And when we talk about language influencing in vocabulary, we focus on four main things, four main aspects of people's experience of themselves. You put those things together, and that's a large part of, of people's identity. And so, uh, you know, we, we often we start these conversations, and we're talking about spelling. Let's talk about abracadabra. So when I say abracadabra, what do you immediately think of? A, a spell, a witch or a warlock doing a spell. Right. Basically magic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're also a Harry Potter geek like me, then you might think about the Havada Kedavra curse, but um, that's for a select few out there. There's, You know what else is for a select few? The Steve Miller band. There's always somebody in the crowd that goes to Steve Miller. <laughs> I'm on that boat, man. I'm on the Steve Miller band boat with you. I, just, I grew up listening to Steve Miller Band. Uh, Me too. Me too. More than Magic and Harry Potter and Steve Miller Band. It's a. It's an actual uh, principle. It's a. It's a key, really. It's Aramaic. It's which is an ancient language. It's one of the two languages uh, Jesus spoke, and one of the. Uh, it, well, not one of the. It's the language the original Old Testament was written in. And abracadabra translates to "With my word, I create." or with my word, I influence. And the metaphysicians, the teachers of the day, they would triangulate abracadabra and wear it around their neck to remind them of the power and the mechanism of the spoken word. And I, I prefer to go with the, this, the second translation, with our words, we influence. So with our words, what do we influence? Back to the four things that we focus on in vocabulary. Um, and and I, I've got a story that sums it up very, very well. It's one of the reasons I keep telling this particular story. I was mm -hmm. coaching a young man. Uh, this is in Calgary. We went up and did a, was a sales training, went up, did our presentation, and stuck around for a couple extra days and did one-on-one -on -one sessions with their with their staff. And uh, and myself and a young man, about 23, 24, and we're in a room, two chairs, we're facing each other, and he said very emphatically, so pay attention to words, can't keep focusing on my past, and immediately turned around and looked behind him, like really, really fast. So fast, he didn't, he didn't see it. So is this like a physical manifestation of the story he's telling himself, like literally looking behind his body like it's there chasing him? Yes, it is. Wow, it that's out. incredible. You know, you just, it's, it's crazy. And then not, once we start to think about it, once we start to connect some dots and, and pay a little bit closer to attention about what's happening right under our noses, I said, you know, you just turned around and looked behind you, right? He goes, what? And I said, yeah, you did. Did you see anything? And he had to stop and think about it. 
which is another interesting part of the conversation because because language it, it it interacts with us it influences us very fast especially when we get emotional about things so i'd be interested to know um you know there's a lot of questions that pop into mind as you're telling these truly amazing stories about some of the people that you've encountered and really how powerful it is that you you know once you've taken the time to study this and and see really the physical manifestation and emotional manifestations of how that internal dialogue works out I think you said something through the course that kind of points out the difference between the way that, you know, American English language functions for influence versus the way that other cultures, you know, perceive story and time with with that language difference. Is there is there something that's kind of unique to the way that we speak to ourselves that kind of perpetuates that that issue or like a a, a counterproductive dialogue or narrative? There is, and then also for the, the part of the conversation, that's a great question. So there is, and there's also for this part of the conversation, uh, this is, this is, these are universal principles or these are universal aspects of ourselves that, that people are experiencing, whether they're Chinese or Russian or, uh, in Portugal or in Utah or in Costa Rica. And it's mm-hmm. the same four things. So our language, it influences our physiology, our imagination, our emotions and feelings. That's three. And then four, how and where we breathe. And those are the four things that we focus on when we're applying vocabulary. So this, this, this guy, he said, he goes, well, I can't keep focusing on my past. And that is t- Technically, a negation. Okay, so it forces him, regardless of how much he wants to to focus on his future, he has to look behind him. And he mm-hmm. said it with such passion that he actually looked behind him. And he saw himself on the couch and all alone. He was anxious and stressed. There's the emotions. There's three out of four. And here's a, a fascinating kicker. Guess where he was breathing? I would I would assume that he was not doing parasympathetic breathing; that he was doing stress breathing up in his chest. Correct? That that is that is very safe to assume that because he was when when we go into a stress response, our breathing gets trapped in our upper chest. It's known as shallow breathing or labor breathing mm-hmm. or coastal breathing, and we have language that describes that in our language. You know, I've, I've got to get this off my chest or mm-hmm. clear clear the. Air. Air, mm-hmm. to take a sigh of relief of pressure. Mm-hmm. That's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah, that's a breath of fresh air. There you go. You're good at this. And so what we've done is we've mapped out something that we called conflict language. And out of all those people that I've sat with and focused on what they say and how it influenced them, and then took some very sobering, uh, more than <laughs> took some, how about a lot? about a constant everyday observation about myself and my language and my story and and maps out what is now vocabulary. And so we help people educate themselves about what language they're using to stress themselves out with and then how to rephrase these statements, translate these stories, and in turn create a better identity for themselves, a more empowered identity, having a 
the art and science of how to have a better conversation with yourself about yourself. Because at the end of the day, that's that's where the rubber meets the road. If I'm uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with me, how can I be comfortable with someone else? Right. You know, it's like we've most people have been out on a date before where the other person's holding their breath. They're stressed. It's like, oh, how does that Mm -hmm. affect you? You know, you pick up on it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then let's just go with the opposite side of the coin. You go out with someone and they're fun and they're breathing well and they're 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 enjoying themselves and they're listening. They're a good listener. When someone goes another thing, you know, whether this is business has something to do with someone's personal someone's professional life or their personal life, the specifics will be a little bit different, but the general general construct of the, the the language is the same. So people that, you know, study vocabulary, and there, there are other uh, language systems out there that are very good. Um, when someone goes about learning more about their language, many things, many things, many good things happen for them personally and professionally. People are better listeners. I can imagine they must be, especially once you start to understand and interpret your own internal language to then take that understanding and and bring that to relationships that you have outside of yourself, I think is really incredibly huge in terms of, you know, being able to relate to other people on a number of different levels, but also just it provides you a little bit more context for being more understanding of folks when, you know, perhaps they're, you know, to use the word that you used earlier, being excessively dramatic or based on your perception anyway that a response might be over dramatic or whatever i think taking a hard look at yourself is such a critical piece of being able to communicate really well with other people and i think a main reason i say that is you know it's, it's so easy for us to assume that you know especially if we're in a pretty negative mental state and you know not to jump ahead because i think we're going to talk about this later but projecting all the responsibility onto other people it's kind of self-perpetuating, but if you take the time to recognize what your own dialogue is, it becomes then a matter of, well, really, in the way I look at this is, you know, from my personal experience, there was a time when I was pretty hard on myself in, in terms of being demanding for work and being demanding for, you know, my fitness and a number of different things. I've always, for better or for worse, been a self-perceived high achiever, right? So failure is never really an option, but I kind of got to a point one day where I was like, if I were my own best friend, how would things be different? For example, one, you know, my sister is one of my best friends. How would I feel about someone else using this language, this destructive conversation, this destructive narrative with somebody that I love? It's not something I would ever accept. So why do I accept that for myself? And so stepping outside of that became a technique for me. It was like, when I started that process of destructive language, how can I how can I rephrase this as if my best friend were trying to give me advice on the situation? And internalizing that made it a lot easier to sit across from people that were struggling, you know, and even not necessarily meaning to. Sometimes, you know, you ask somebody at work, how are you doing today? And when they say anything other than I'm great or I'm good, that's an indication that someone wants to share something with you, you know. So I've had people, you know, just say, I'm all right. I'm okay. Well, let me, you know, crack that open a little bit more why not great? What's going on? And it's amazing how much people will open up to you when you'll listen. But I found that interactions with others are a lot easier 
when I put myself into that, yeah, you know, I guess you could call it empathy or maybe not, but um, just being able to kind of fill the gaps, you know, when someone else seems dramatic or whatever. It's been it's been pretty helpful to use that technique, and I've also really picked up some good techniques from the vocabulary training as well. That even in just a few short attempts after the first couple classes at work, I was amazed at how different I thought I sounded. And it was like, wow, when I go to do this podcast with Mark, I have to really think about everything before I say it because he's going to be analyzing the whole time. But that's that's uh, mainly I just a... <laughs> I am and I'm not. Personal thing. Um, that, that, was, that was about year seven, year six, year seven, where I chose to get over myself Mm-hmm. When it came to other people's language, I was being judgmental. I was being oh, judgmental yeah. and pointing things out and thinking that that was the right thing to do. And 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 eventually it dawned on me. You know, sometimes I'm a little slow on the uptake. Uh, that wait a minute, my problem with their language is my problem. So let's take out interesting. So my problem with my language is my problem because while they're saying mm-hmm. what they're saying. I'm I'm having a conversation in my mind judging them. Mm-hmm. Who, again, back back to the multi-million dollar question, who's stressing me out? Them yep. or me? Who's interacting with my imagination? Who's responsible for my imagination at the end of the day, me or them? As mm-hmm. an adult, myself, thank God. Because if it was their yeah. responsibility for my emotions and if they, they were responsible for me feeling a certain way. It was it was it was all on them. Then then <laughs> then I got a real problem. Otherwise I'm just confused and, and lacking some 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 basic understanding about how this game is played, this language and story and identity game is played. And if there is a game to play, thank God. Yep, and I can't I mean, gosh, there's so many different connections. I don't think there's enough hours in the day to, to touch on everything that's kinda of running through my mind as we go through the conversation, but Something that I think back to is I feel like there are a lot of folks out there that you could consider to be or that would be self-proclaimed, you know, sensitive. I'm a sensitive person. I'm emotional, whatever. It seems like there are sometimes situations where if a sensitive person chooses to take a statement personally, that becomes... A couple of things. It's an assumption that, you know, what the other person said was intended to be destructive or hurtful. And that's, you know, assuming that you know the other person's motivations. But it's also got to be exhausting. I partly say that from personal experience. I was um, pretty sensitive for a long time, and I've kind of grown out of that a little bit as I've gotten older. And, you know, the military has a way of affecting your personality sometimes. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I kind of got to a point, too, where it was like, you know, I don't I don't have to choose to be offended because that that makes me assume that I know what the other person is is trying to get after here and to have to carry that weight around with me of always assuming that people are thinking or wanting the worst for me. It's a, it's an incredibly large burden and it kind of takes away and again jumping ahead a little bit but it it, it disempowers me to make the changes I need to make to move forward? Uh, 100%. This is a fantastic part of the conversation. I'm glad you brought it up because uh, it brings up 
the the identity versus process. So when someone says, I am a sensitive person, they have labeled themselves, they've identified themselves as static. That's the way they are. As mm-hmm. opposed to, and so when, as were you always sensitive all the time to the same degree for 15 years in a row? Or did it fluctuate? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you were more sensitive. Sometimes you were more uh, neutral, more centered. So instead, in, it, to, to be more accurate, and so it said, vocabulary is not about good and bad and right and wrong. We're about input and output, cause and effect. And so going from I'm a sensitive person to I am being a sensitive person, making it more of a process, then that right there gives you it implies that, oh, wait a minute, I can let this go. I can mm-hmm. stop being that so much and start being something different because that is the case. People change their minds all the time. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, you know, if, if I'm, our language is tricky. Language is tricky. It's so easy. It's so easy to believe ourselves, to believe the voice in the head that sounds like us and to take other people's opinions as truth okay we like the analogy of a buffet when you go up to a buffet you are responsible for the plate the food that you put on the plate and then that you eat not all the mm-hmm. food up there okay and mm-hmm. let's go back to the guy who, who said uh you know why do we always have to drink so much when we go out so we shorten that sentence down why do we have to, why do we drink so much when we go out and now he had he had five or six pro-level drinking buddies, and he wanted to make some changes in his life, and it was really hard for him to make those changes when he kept putting his other five or six friends in the in his decision-making process, which his language forced him to do. I said, cool, let's get those guys out of there. So we took out the wheeze and put in eyes. Why do I drink so much when I go mm-hmm. This is such an incredibly important topic, I think, for particularly, you know, the the cohort of listeners that we have in this podcast. In, in general, the Valkyrie Project is designed to help support female military athletes in, in their journey and their careers. But we have a listenership that's even broader than that. You know, we've got some folks that are civilian. We've got a mix of men and women and a little bit of everybody that's just kind of interested in, in improving their their lives and really any way that's available with the information we have. But especially when you talk about people's tribes and that big piece of human nature that drives us to be accepted by others and surrounded by others and to be social creatures. I mean, even the most introverted folks to some extent have people in their lives that even though they don't reach out very often, there's there's one or two that they that they would reach out to just because it's it's part of human nature as our survival process. And especially in military circles, I know everyone that's listening right now that has any experience with that can think of an example where they're sitting in a conversation, a room, a meeting, whatever, and I like to call it the negative Nancy syndrome, but one particular person is being pretty negative. And it's like a it's like a disease. It's like a cancer. Before you know it, even the people in the room that you most look up to and and kind of look to for leadership and positivity and 
you know, being less emotive and more objective about how things should be done or what's happening. Before you know it, everyone's kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, having a bitch fest. And I've even walked away from, you know, situations like that myself. Like, wow, I allowed that environment to kind of let, like, it it influenced the way that I decided to speak. And I kind of internalized that. So, you know, this, if it's a problem, then it's also an opportunity for a solution. And, you know, I would challenge, especially anyone that's listening out there that finds himself in a, in a toxic workplace position or, you know, a situation where conversations don't seem productive, like to take a hard look at that because it's so, it's so incredibly powerful from the negative aspect, but also from the positive aspect. You said the magic word, solutions. If someone, first things first, two pieces of advice for people if they find themselves in a work conversation or a meeting with a negative Nancy. First, mm-hmm. read. Okay. Negative yep. Nancy's are super annoying. Okay. And they can totally derail and often do derail projects. So when I like to take care of my side of the street first, make sure that I'm out of that. Even just, just by 10% a win out of that stress mm-hmm. response to a degree, make sure I'm breathing well. And then, and then just say, listen, I, we totally appreciate your your points of view and your opinions, and the next 10 minutes is just solutions. That's all we're talking about, just solutions, and what will invariably happen <laughs> if the next yeah. Nancy yeah. continues to speak. They're probably going to rant, be ranting in negations, because that's what – do you know anyone, Meg, who's a professional warrior? They're very good at worrying. Oh, man. You're talking to, like, a professional warrior in current recovery. Yeah. Yep. Most people know and I, I, one. Yeah, and plenty of other people outside of myself, too. The negations. So the negative Nancys, so solutions only. They're going to be talking in negations. You know, what, what can't happen? What shouldn't continue in whatever area they are? What? But uh, what isn't possible? What ha- and 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 who's to blame for what hasn't happened yet? It's it is a disease. It makes people sick, ill, quite literally. And with enough practice and repetition, and whether it's the person that keeps focusing on worst case scenarios over and over and over again, hoping things are going to get better, also known as someone who worries. Or someone who blames other people consciously or accidentally. There's the projections. You know, why do we always mm-hmm. have to drink so much when we go out? That's accidental. You hurt my feelings again. That's more direct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's the soft talk. Well, is okay. So for soft talk, what would you have thought and felt when you contacted me if I had said, uh, Hey Meg, yeah, I think we can probably do a show sometimes, uh, sometime uh, in the future, perhaps. Period. Yeah, that's extremely vague, and and it's funny you bring that up because you know another militaryism is you know we've we've kind of gotten pretty good at being able to be very direct for the most part. Let's do this as at X Y and Z time. It's really maddening to have to 
talk to someone is like maybe probably well indecisive, meandering around. It does, it's not productive and it's really, it creates a sense of, well, you're only about 50% invested in, you know, what it is we're trying to do because the other 50% of you is not willing to be committal. And that's, and that's a pretty frustrating thing. Yeah, let's talk about that 50%. This is one of the, I mean, there's a lot of, we can get weird real fast. So I think I <laughs> would want to would want to do your show. I think I want to do your show. Okay? That's a tone down. That's just one piece of soft talk. Think. Now, look at the how many eyes are in that statement. I think I. There's two me's in there. Why did mm-hmm. I create another me and put some of the decision-making process and responsibility on that person? Maybe I did it, maybe I, maybe I did it consciously. Maybe uh, that's just a habit that I have yeah. adopted from the people that have introduced me to language. Because language is very much an inheritance. We inherit it mm-hmm. from our parents, from, from, from our culture. And if we use it just the way everybody else uses it, uh, things will happen. And let's say that someone grows up around someone who is horrendously indecisive which is a very mm-hmm. particular flavor of stress. Nobody likes chronic prolonged bouts of indecision. That, that hurts. Right. And, um, and so if I'm – I used to do that in college. We, talk, we talked about it in the course. It, it, it would influence my ability to be on time. And once <laughs> I put those dots – once I connected those dots, I, it, uh-huh. just, it was more fuel to the fire. Of hey, you know what? Uh, many good things will happen by manicuring and curating and moderating what I think and saying right. Yeah, many many good things. So, if we're you know we're talking a lot about the bad habits that we tend to carry forward when we're having internal and external conversations, as you put it in vocabulary conflict language, and you know we discussed that. This language is very often a habit, and we don't have the way our brains work, especially when we talk about things like heuristics and, you know, those pre-programmed systems in the human mind that are designed to make your life easier on a day-to-day basis. With those things in place, I guess the main question I have for you and to sort of inspire that possibility in the minds of our listeners is, how is that habit broken? You know, especially in a modern setting, you know, we hear and read a lot about the exciting frontiers of neuroplasticity and how, you know, if you can make yourself continue a certain practice, then you can a break you can break a habit that you previously had and make new behaviors more automatic. Is that a realistic possibility for folks that are looking to break this vicious cycle and you know, is it is it something that becomes more automatic over time because, you know, especially listening to my own internal and external dialogue after doing the vocabulary course, it's very much an active activity. Um, you can't be passively thinking. It's It takes some focus and, and presence in the moment to say, oh, wow, I just said the most soft sentence ever to myself. You know, instead of, well, maybe I should go to the gym. Oh, I'm going to the gym. Like, wow, I just made a significant change in my, like, the course of my day just just now, but it took actively thinking about it, you know, what can, what can listeners that are willing to invest a little time in this look forward to? 
Well, there's another magic word in investment. So your investment in the in your studies of of, of the language game, it has given you the ability to recognize that soft talk statement, make the correction, make the adjustment, and then end up at the gym, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. And how how valuable was that changing that course of direction? Little wins. Uh, I little wins throughout the day. I've saved myself absolutely of misery just from just from translating, just from reflecting a couple of projections where I could have lost hours and days chewing on a story of something that I thought someone did to me. When I'm like, no, wait a minute, man. You know, they didn't make me believe that. I made me believe that. Oh yeah, silly me go about my life. And there's it all it is is a skill. There's nothing there's nothing magic about it. And I mean that by definition of magic. The definition of magic is the ability to alter the course of events using supernatural forces. It's not the ability to do it, it's the apparent ability to do it. So there's nothing magic about this practice. It's just it's simply a skill. So when you were initially learning the CrossFit movements, that was a large initial investment uh, of time and mental real estate to get competent, right? And physical comfort, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. All the above. Yeah. And I hang out with a lot of CrossFitters. And Oh, good. <laughs> you... Uh, once you did acquire that skill set, then you could go in the gym and practice. You, you, you had to think about some of the movements, especially the macro movements, less, and you could focus on, well, maybe pushing yourself a little more in a wad or so, you know, uh, some particular fine tuning of a, of this technique and that technique. So just like anything that anyone wants to get better at, there's going to be an initial sizable investment to get you in the door. And then, Mm -hmm. Once you've got some, once you've got some skills, then you can play with it a little bit more, and eventually, um, it, it it comes it becomes a lot easier because it's just more automatic. And so, as far as neuroplasticity is a total real thing, great mirror neurons, yes, wonderful. Smile more, Bre smile more, and breathe more, and. We give this advice to people when they're presenting. We we coach a lot of speakers. One of my favorite things to do with clients, and so we help them polish their speaking game. And what we advise them to do is to practice speaking at eighty eighty five percent of their normal rate. They'll end up saying less, sounding and being more relaxed, and having their message received in superior fashion than when they get really excited and talk a lot and la 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 And so that's, a, that's another piece of advice. When, when it comes to having sensitive conversations, so, so let's go back to the negative Nancy. Someone's in the meeting with negative Nancy, and you have to adjust the direction of the conversation. Slow down your rate of speech. It'll help you. It'll give you that extra bit of mental real estate so you can 
focus on your smile a little bit more, and you'll you'll have a greater influence in the meeting. And guess what? You'll feel better the whole way through too. So there are ways to there are ways to speak differently, and then there are ways to say what we say differently. And if you get a little bit better at the language game, the word game, and a little bit better at the delivery, uh, you know, the most successful people I know are all good communicators and successful mm-hmm. by their definition. So whether it's they're very focused on developing uh, a happy marriage, <laughs> good communication is a part of that. Uh, that's not understanding. Yep. Whether they want to um, develop their 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 business acumen, their their social networks. Guess what they're going to do more of? Well, communicate. We're doing it all day long. Yep. Couldn't agree with you more there. Not to completely switch directions, but we've, we've touched on a couple things that are sort of starting to paint a picture. And and this is something that. I think is going to drive the point home in a little bit more of a personal way, especially for certain listeners out there. But, you know, we had briefly mentioned the victim mentality Mm -hmm. earlier. And so, you know, talking about communication being very important, not only externally, but, you know, being realistic with yourself and being honest with yourself about asking, you know, is what I'm telling myself a true story, an accurate narrative or not? And there's sort of this interesting dichotomy that I've seen with women in the military. And, you know, this is not meant to be, this is a generalization. You know, I can't, I can't ever be in a position to say that I speak for every woman that's ever worn a uniform because it's just not accurate. However, something that I have seen um, is that there's a dichotomy between two sort of states of mind, I guess you could say, or perspectives on when certain things happen in the workplace as far as communication goes. For example, um, I was giving a, an important briefing one time, probably the most important briefing to the most important audience in a number of years. And after the, this particular briefing was, it was complete, the main audience left the room and a particularly important person that I'd never met before walked in behind them. It was like a, I think it was like a two-star general. And he saw my, I was at the time in a different job, but was previously an aviator in the army. And so, you know, we, we do the army thing and we wear our patches and stuff on our, on our uniforms. And, um, you know, it's part of my past experience. So I've got it on. And he looks at me with, what I initially interpreted as scrutinizing face and said, why are you wearing that badge? And I was instantly offended, instantly offended because it was from that. I infer, you know, this person either thinks like I'm a stolen valor person. Like, you know, those guys you see on the internet, they're like just steal stuff from the military surplus store and wear it so they can get discounts or like, he thinks I'm a piece of crap, like I, you know, I'm a piece of crap because I was previously in this, what is generally assumed to be a sexy job, and now I'm doing something different. So maybe, 
So clearly he's assuming that I screwed up and that's why I'm here. So I kind of became flustered and, you know, I answered his question as respectfully and calmly as I could and said, you know, I used to be an aviator in a past life and this set of circumstances happened, blah, blah, blah. The army threw away my helicopter. I picked a different job. Here I am. And I later realized in the car on the way home that that entire narrative of him scrutinizing and judging me was completely invented in my head. Because I have no way of cracking his skull open and knowing for sure that he thought I was, you know, a stolen valor person or, you know, a piece of shit soldier because I chose to fail at something or whatever. I completely made that up. And that was kind of another light bulb moment in the car on the way home that I was, I had to, in that, for that particular scenario, I had to actively choose to give the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe he was just curious. Or I had to choose the narrative that was, this guy's assuming all kinds of mean things about me. He's a sexist. He thinks I'm a piece of crap. And I can, like, that's my option. One or the other is not a reality unless I sit down and force him to tell me exactly what he meant by that. Like, the reality is whatever I choose in that moment. And so I guess going back to the whole dichotomy thing, there is a tendency to perpetually choose the story that may or may not be true, but it is completely destructive. And there's the other path, which is sometimes I have to give people the benefit of the doubt. Another example being, you know, to try and keep the story short, um, we were in a training event out in the field, and there was a particular thing that I was pretty good at that I'd practiced a lot before. And this guy, you know, we were a bunch of people from all walks of life thrown into the mix together at the last minute. We didn't really know each other that well. And uh, the guy says, oh, we need somebody to do X, Y, Z. And I said, oh, yeah, I've done that a million times. I can do it. And without skipping a beat, he said, we need somebody strong to do that. Like... And that one was like, whoa, jabbed directly into the heart. This guy doesn't know anything about me and is immediately assuming that I was like weak or this or that. But that was another example where I had a choice. And so in order to keep myself level and not get too emotional and, you know, not lose my temper in this professional environment, I was like, okay, well, maybe he's just never worked with women in the military before. Maybe he has some assumptions and, you know, I just have to be patient with this guy. And I was actually really surprised that by the end of that course... He came up to me and told me, actually, he apologized and said, you know, I made a lot of assumptions about you guys, but, you know, the women that are out here are really strong and I'm I'm really impressed. I've never worked with women in the military that can do the things you guys can do. And it was really refreshing to see that, you know, assuming the positive story was actually true. So there's a choice there. And I think that it would be really easy if you were a person that continued to choose the assumed negative narrative over and over and over again, that that becomes your habit, a perpetual thing that just is constantly going to keep you in a position where you have no power or control to change that state of mind that you're in. That's called the victim mentality. And I'll give you the verbatim definition of that in a second. What I'd like to point out is good job in, in, in having a, a clear conversation with yourself. Okay. So the first guy, when you mentioned the, the medals that you were wearing, the badges, um, you know, what if you had 
knee-jerk reaction, the that negative story, and kept on playing it for two months. Yeah, that would, yeah. That would, that would hurt. It would suffer. Mm-hmm. You would suffer. And same thing with, uh, with the other guy. You know, it's, it's always better to, to show them, not tell them. And very mm-hmm. likely because of you keeping your cool and then showing them, showing him what you can do. That was the, the magic one, two combo for him to say to, for him to check himself. Cause if you had blown up, made a scene, not that you would have, I'm not sure of the ranking system there. Uh, Let's just say you did. Let's say it's not in the military. Then, then now, now there's an argument to be had. Okay, and it would yep. make him changing his own mind. He would dig his heels in. There's that. There's a lot of science behind that, actually. And then, uh, you know, you mentioned what if you're the person that that chooses the negative story, or then not, they don't even choose it because you have to have in order to make a choice, you have to have more than one option. And if someone only has one way of using their language, they don't know that, oh, wait a minute, I can tell myself a variety of different stories about anything that's happened to me. And some of them will be more accurate. Some of them will be less accurate than others. And actually, the more mm-hmm. accurate ones are, uh, you know, more liberating and empowering. But if, if someone only has, if someone only chooses or has that one way of, of, uh, of telling that story and it's the negative one, then they will eventually conclude consciously or unconsciously, that they are a victim. The -hmm. definition of the victim mentality is an acquired personality trait where a person tends to regard himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in the absence of clear evidence. The victim mentality depends on a habitual thought process and attributions. That's the verbatim definition. I find the second the second sentence. Very, very intriguing. It depends, as in it has to have a habitual thought process. Mm -hmm. So habitual habit, that implies duration and addiction. You ever met anybody who seemed to be addicted to their victim mentality? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a thing. Yeah, I've seen that before. It's a total thing. And it and it kind of makes you sad for that person that you know. Because what do you say to someone that that's constantly projecting or not you know realizing their own their own role in a certain position? Because you you can't. It makes it harder to communicate with them certainly because depending on the relationship you have with that person, you can't just come out and say, "Well, why don't you stop feeling sorry for yourself and X, Y, and Z?" Um, yeah, so yeah, in, internally and externally destructive. Yeah client of mine came in, she sat down, she said, I have a problem with my face. Wow. She knew exactly, yeah, right? She knew exactly where it came from. When she was young, her great aunt, when when, uh, there was was one family holiday, bent down and got in her face and she said, my, don't you have a big nose just like me? The girl walked into the the bathroom, looked at her face, looked at her nose, which was no bigger than it was three minutes before her aunt said that, and had a completely different opinion of how how she looked. His language, it, it it we have something. This is very important too. Please, if you're listening to this, 
look up the reticular activating system. We talk about this in all of our foundational trainings. It's huge. Okay, so you have likely, Meg, had the experience of purchasing a new car, and then you yep. start to see that same car uh, out and about more and more on the road. Yep. Have you ever had that? That 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 absolutely that is, go team Mini Cooper. We have a secret wave and everything. There you there. You, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We wave Mini Mini Cooper. Yep, that's the thing. I had a Jeep in high school, and you know, people that drive Jeeps wave. No, no one knows that unless they're driving a Jeep, right? And exactly. The the it's probably the same thing for blue Oldsmobiles. I mean, you see somebody in a blue Oldsmobile, and you're like, hey, brother. Um, there is hardware. You know, we we're talking about mirror neurons and neuroplasticity, and and let's talk about this too because it's part of the hardware. The reticular activating system is responsible for that phenomenon. So once our attention gets drawn to something, okay, our reticular activating system takes that as important feedback, okay? It deems that, that thing, whether it's a concept or someone's nose of another Mini Cooper, uh, you know, the fact that you're a really industrious person or the fact, neither of those are facts, fact that uh, nothing ever works out for you. Once once the reticular activating system gets programmed, and it's it's getting programmed all the time, then it starts to go out on a search and edit mission. So while you're picking up more and more Mini Coopers, you're you're editing out your reticular activating system is editing out green vans because it's not a Mini Cooper. And it's the same thing mm -hmm. for someone like like someone who can who just sees the opportunity in the situation. They're just really good at it. Were they born that way? Very unlikely. Have they learned to do that? Very likely. Is their language a part of that? Very likely. Are they thinking, constantly thinking about how, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, nothing ever works out for them, and people are always out to get them, and uh, you know, uh, I'll never amount to anything. But oh yeah, here's the opportunity, and I'm going to go for it. No. And neither of those, those, those are simply opinions. They're conversations mm -hmm. that, that lead up to our ability to see, actually see things, see the value in ourselves and other people. Yeah. So with that, and if we with that it, said, it down, it's a language conversation, sentences. Yeah. I've, I've noticed, you know, in, in that vein, um, I think those stories become a lot more potent speaking in terms of, you know, the military profile, like when we're in a training situation or an assessment situation where uh, the hours are long and you're sleep deprived and there's a good chance you haven't gotten enough calories in a particular day and you're constantly being faced with challenges that are above and beyond what you might encounter in, you know, your standard day to day life it seems like those stories become even more powerful in those moments and more difficult to turn off because you don't often have the mental capacity or I guess uh, maybe you could call it RAM left in your brain to actively be present in the moment and counter that negative cycle. So, you know, it seems to me a good technique for 
people that find themselves in that situation, they know they're going to go out for a really difficult assessment or a very difficult training that's going to push their limits and, you know, potentially make or break a certain part of their career that this habit of constructive, solid talk needs to be established ahead of time. And it has to be practiced so that when you do find yourself at the lowest moment when that negative narrative could be completely ending your ability to endure anything, um, that, it, that it's there for you as a backup. If, it, if it's true that we can change these mental habits and kind of rewire our heuristics. 100%. It's, it's metaphysical fitness. And when someone develops their story just a little bit better way, it's the same thing as someone getting in, in a little bit better shape. And let's say it's an obstacle course. Someone that's in good shape is going to do better than someone that's in bad shape on an obstacle course. And it's the same thing with the with the with someone's mentality. You know, our clients they 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 go on a uh, they they take their story to the gym, and their story gets stronger in the ways that they want it to be stronger. And so when they go out into the world, they have a. a you know, they have a, their, their psychological and emotional immune system is raised to the inevitable, uh, uh, you know, jerk. Because that's, it, it's the, the last thing that's going to happen. And if it happens, we're all in trouble is everybody's nice to each other all the time forever. That's not happening. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, then guess what? I'm going to encounter, uh, all kinds of different people in my life. You know, why would I expect it to be anything less? And I want to be able to, and I am, to a much better degree than I was, able to navigate those experiences with them. And, yes, they might say something that totally stings. Now that it's on my side of the street, how long am I going to let it sting for? They say it once. Mm-hmm. I've played a thousand times over in my head. Where's the, yeah. where's, where's the responsibility lie? It's with me. How fast can I drop this thing? How fast can I refocus? How fast can I build up my men, my momentum? How resilient am I? A lot of that comes down to the conversation that I have with myself about myself. Couldn't agree with you more there, Mark. And I'm really excited for all of our listeners to take a minute and check out the breadth of possibility that exists with changing your narrative and changing how you have that self-talk constructed. Um, so... I'm thinking it might be a good time now for if you had some specified advice, maybe for the female military community or just military community at large, um, a couple key takeaways that they could kind of put in their toolkit right now until they take a minute and hop online and take a look at Procabulary and what it can offer for them. You know, there are a couple nuggets of wisdom that you would toss out there for our listeners in the meantime. Sure thing. Pay attention to 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 people that are focused and empowered and are making things happen. And when I mean pay attention to them, I mean pay attention to their language. And so you stop believing the story that they're telling so much, and you focus more in on the, the specific words that they're saying. And watch how what the, the words that they're saying influences their facial expressions. And, and and make a study of them over a three-month period of time, okay? And then do the opposite for people that have a lot of problems. 
do the same thing for people that that just can't make up their mind. And and especially let's let's talk about the venom again and from a different direction. The the poison. Pay very close attention to people that gossip. Pay very close attention to what they say and how how they feel and how you feel around them and what happens when seven of them get together and then decide am i going to say am i going to say those same things am i going to say the same amount of those same th- things i have said in the past am i going to say less am i going to say more because you it's listen everybody it's your story you do what you want with it what we're saying is that what well, we're saying it we're showing it we're helping people have more choices and an understanding there is, I, just, I keep coming back to the, the, the analogy of a game. There's a very cool game to be played. Very cool game to be mm-hmm. played. And write down what you want. Another thing. So another piece of the, some, some, some action steps. Write down what you want. We're very, we, we didn't touch on it. We can do another show on goals if you want to, Meg. Write down what you want to happen in 2019 and write it out conversationally. Make sure it's stated in the, in the affirmative. Uh, I don't want to feel so blah, blah, blah all the time. Okay, that's what you don't want to feel. What do you want to feel more of? Oh, okay, I want to feel more of this, this, and this. Okay, so I'm going to do more of that, that, and that. And add in numbers and dates. You know, if you want to take some certifications, some courses, look them up. Send an email. Sign up now. Writing things down is another way of helping you develop your identity. Goal setting. Also, is also spelling goals and spells is the same thing. Um, it's very powerful. Only three percent of the population has any written goals. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea yeah, about that. Crazy. Not so. Ninety-seven percent of the population has nothing written down on paper about how they would like their life to be. You know what that's like? That's like ninety-seven percent of a, a class of high school students not having even a rough draft to hand in. Hmm. I wonder how much of that is based on, you know, a fear of the finality of commitment. I don't know where I remember reading this, but someone stated that um, our greatest fear is our own greatness. And, you know, perhaps there's a little bit of reticence to kind of take full advantage of, you know, what that powerful, solid talk can do for us. But um, that's that's good to know. Yeah. The... Procapillary is a beast. Reflecting my projections back in on me and taking responsibility of what I'm doing to myself, that's, that is an, a, a, annoying is, a, is an understatement, okay? It's hard work mm-hmm. at times, okay? Taking out the soft talk and becoming more solid and following through with what I say I'm going to do. There's, that poses its own unique challenges. And then learning to focus more on what I want and stop terrifying myself with worst case scenarios, which is negations going from negations to affirmations. It's a it's a beast of a practice. And I go back to this concept that I would much rather get trampled in the arena than be a spectator in the stands or even worse, be out in the parking lot. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I like that one, Mark. I might have to borrow that one from you if that's cool. Use it. Take it. And Great. people that like tech talks, go to YouTube. Punch in Mark England, TED Talk, and, yeah, you'll get a nine-minute summation of vocabulary and the conversation conversation specifically about identity, 
language and it's telephobia, the fear of not being good enough. And it's a great way, a great way to start the conversation with other people in your networks about, hey, wait a minute, our language is a little bit more powerful than we thought. And for your listeners that want to go further and you want to study this stuff and really nail it, go to procabulary.org, click on courses, watch the three-minute promotional video, and select Core Language Upgrade. Super easy, super easy course to take. It's a five-minute video. It's 21 days. Five-minute video. Quick quiz about the video and some questions. Most people are done in 10 minutes because anyone that wants to improve their language is going to have to be busy doing other things. And we don't get many couch potatoes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in the sign-up process, you will see a coupon code box. Okay? Core Language Upgrades, 299 bucks. Put in next level, all one word, you'll get $100 off. And you have access to the videos for life. We want you all to get this. That's an incredibly generous gift. Thank you, Mark, for that. I can certainly attest to the power of the entire Core Language course. I've taken it myself. And, um, you know, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, I've put some of these techniques to work and they've been pretty effective for me so far and I've only finished the course about a week ago so highly highly recommend the core language upgrade course and um, everybody listening out there go check out the TED talk go check out the procabulary.org training and certainly uh, if you have any follow-up questions we'd like to hear from you um, make sure that you check us out on valkyrieprojectus.com and we're also on Facebook and Instagram as Valkyrie Project US. But for now, I'd like to take a quick moment to thank you again, Mark, so much for, you know, enduring all the the life circumstances that kind of delayed us recording the podcast. But thanks again for your insights and for sharing your personal story and all your wisdom with the listeners that we have. Uh, I think that there's a lot of folks out there that can really benefit from the incredible work that we're doing. uh, And we thank you for doing it. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me on. And everybody, thank you for listening to the show. It means a lot to us. Cool. It's a great conversation. So everyone, after you've had a chance to get on Google and look up Mark England's TED Talk about the power of language, make sure that you check out the Valkyrie Project pages as well. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Valkyrie Project US. Make sure to go like and follow those pages and leave us any feedback you may have about the podcast and leave us your recommendations about who you'd like to hear from next. We're also on Twitter as Valkyrie Proj US. That's V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-E-P-R-O-J-U-S. As always, do today what others won't. Do tomorrow what others can't. Thanks for listening.